1 Samuel chapter 15. We didn't quite sneak out of chapter 15 together last time. In fact, we really just want to draw your attention to the last verse of chapter 15 as we kind of take that. It transitions us into where we're going in chapter 16 this evening. It tells us in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, verse 35, And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. At this point in our study in Samuel together, King Saul, as we have watched in the recent chapters, has become filled with pride and certainly many of the unhealthy symptoms that come as a result of a heart being infected with pride. And worst of all, we've seen Saul has repeatedly rejected the voice of the Lord. And not just once, twice, but on a continuous basis, there was this pattern that developed within him, really a a pattern of rebellion where he refused to obey the Lord. He was rejecting the word of God in his life. And coupled with this, there was a lack of repentance. Though this was brought to Saul's attention repeatedly, that he should heed the voice of the Lord, that he had been rebelling against what God was saying to him, and he was challenged and confronted about this on multiple occasions, there was no indication of repentance or change in his heart. And as a result of that, he is now, as we see, being removed from his role as king and he's now going to be replaced by David who we begin to see the call of David as we come to chapter 16 this evening in fact if I can refresh your memory we're told back in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel this it says that Samuel had said to Saul you have done foolishly you've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God which he commanded you for now the Lord would have and it's never good to hear God say that to you I would have for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever the monarchy would have continued through his family line but now the Lord said your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So that clear indication there that the kingdom was no longer going to continue under the family line of Saul, the first king of Israel, because he had not kept the command of the Lord. He was not obedient to the word of God to him in his life. And God said that he has now sought out for himself a man after his own heart. The first king was selected according to the people's preference. The things that they thought was necessary for a leader over them, what they found to be important in people. And yet the second king of Israel, see God's selection, David sought after and selected by God because of the condition of his heart and that he was a man who had a heart after the Lord. He was passionate about the Lord. He had inward character and depth to him. He was someone who would be a shepherd king over the people. Uh, He had a love for the Lord and he was someone who was willing to be led by the Lord, to be led by the spirit of God and had the heart of God for his people. Uh, And Saul, unfortunately, his disobedience and rebellion to the voice of the Lord was not repented of. 
if you'll draw your attention in chapter 15 back to verse 11, we begin to see how God was in this process of continually demonstrating his uh, rejection now of King Saul. 1 Samuel 15:11. Uh, it says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, God said, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So, such a sad thing. There was this potential in Saul. He started out well. There was opportunity for him. He was given a great calling and an opportunity afforded to him by God. But yet it says that he brought great regret to the heart of the Lord. And, and as I read that word, I think to myself, how sad. I don't ever want to think that I would do something in my life or begin to behave or go down a path or pattern where I would cause regret to the heart of God. That God would look upon my life and say, man, I re- what, what a great regret that brings to me to think what could have been the potential that was there the opportunity of what could have happened and yet because of my personal disobedience as a human being or as it says here my failure to obey the commandment of God for my life well God sent Samuel we saw to confront Saul in chapter 15 regarding his sin and disobedience but again we saw last time that Saul continued to just make excuses and to rationalize his partial disobedience we saw those great verses in chapter 15 verse 22 and 23 if I can reacquaint you this is really the crux of the matter Samuel said to Saul regarding his condition has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. That is, God would rather us sacrifice our will. That's the greatest sacrifice, not my will, but your will be done. He'd rather us sacrifice our will and obey the Lord rather than think anything we can give to the Lord can somehow be a substitute for our obedience to him in our personal lives or to his word directly he says it's better to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion remember these strong terms rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as the iniquity of idolatry because stubbornness against god's will and word is really just self-worship it's the worst form of idolatry it's idolizing ourself being more important and having a greater level of value than God himself. He says, because again, there it is, you've rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Look down with me, verse 27. Samuel then turned to go away from Saul after confronting him. Saul seized the edge of his robe. We saw it and it tore as he was walking away. And Samuel turned and said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And of course, we'll see in chapter 16, this neighbor of yours who God said his estimation of David is that he is better than you. Now, was it because David was better in the sense of he had more experience he was more proficient with administration he had more talent or or any of the it had nothing to do with that what was better about david was just the condition of his heart and we're going to see that's what matters to god 
That's what matters when it comes to being used of God and, and what is of foremost importance to the Lord, as we're going to see in chapter 16, where God says man looks on the outward appearance, the fleshly skills, abilities, what a person has offered, but he says, but, but God looks upon the heart. That's what truly matters above all else is the condition of the heart. The heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart when it comes to God and how he perceives things from his perspective. So now Saul being rejected as the king, he'll now be replaced by David. And we see this begin to happen in chapter 16 as we see the calling of this man, David, who becomes the prominent figure now through much of the history of Israel, this incredible man, great life study, so much about David's life. In many ways, uh, most commentators seem to indicate, mention more than any other human figure in the Old Testament, more than Abraham, more than Moses, and even Jesus. Jesus wasn't the son of Abraham or uh, you know, the, the descendant of Moses. He was the son of David. Something so special about the life of David, and we see his calling now into ministry as God raises him up from this young youth who just had a great heart and passion for the Lord. So chapter 16 opens by telling us as Samuel has been mourning over Saul's failure and rebellion against God and this whole process of being rejected. It says, The Lord then said to Samuel the prophet, verse 1, How long will you mourn for Saul? seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So uh, again here, this situation exists where interesting two things are happening. The last verse of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1, sort of bring this transition. Uh, and it's a very interesting transition. And, and if I can, if you give me just a moment just to step back to make mention of something from chapter verse 35 that I wanted to draw attention to, is it tells us there in chapter 15, verse 35, that Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. So there's this prolonged period of mourning and grieving that gets addressed in chapter 16, verse 1, before he's to go anoint David, king of Israel. But chapter 15, verse 35, tells us that Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day that Saul actually died. So because Saul was unwilling to really, in a lot of ways, take personal responsibility and deal with his disobedience his rebellion against God and God's word for his life and not walking in the will of God, Samuel the prophet, God's representative, departs from having ongoing relationship with Saul at this point. Because Saul is in a place of conscious disobedience and he's rebelling against the will of God and the word of God and there's no indication of repentance... Because of that, Samuel no longer goes to see him that he does not have ongoing relationship. He refrains from fellowship to show God's spiritual disapproval of what Saul was doing at this point. So there's this purposeful detachment of relationship. Samuel is feeling the sadness of God. He's feeling the grief of God, mourning over the condition that Saul was in. And yet, the detachment of relationship was necessary to show God's disapproval. 
It, that, that separation of no longer going to see him, no longer having ongoing fellowship and interaction with him was basically a practical way of demonstrating, which was necessary, God's disapproval of what he was doing. That he was living in disobedience and that there was no indication of repentance of the wrongdoing that he was participating in. And let me just say, this is a scriptural principle. We see in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when there were individuals within the body of Christ there in the church. These weren't people in the world because Paul says there, look, if you were going to detach from people in the world who were living in sin and rebellion to God, Paul says there, you'd have to leave the world. You have to go off the planet to do that. But he says when there are those within the church, within the body of Christ, who name the name of Christ, who claim to be a Christian, but yet consciously walk in rebellion and disobedience to the revealed will of God, then 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 Paul says that there is a time that the Holy Spirit would lead us to separate ourselves from having fellowship with them. It tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 11, but now I've written to you, listen, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who's sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, or a viler, a drunkard, an extortioner, nor even to eat with such a person. Again, the indication there. Two things. They're claiming to be a Christian. There's a proclamation, I'm a Christian. There's this open, not somebody who, you're not. There's a clear indication they're a Christian, and yet they are living in conscious rebellion to an aspect of the word of God or they're not dealing with some issue that is out of alignment with the Lord and his will and there's no indication of repentance then the Bible says there comes a time where we retract fellowship from them where we pull back we don't keep company with them and the purpose of that really is to indicate spiritual disapproval God does not endorse what you're doing God does not agree with what you're doing and because I have the heart of God, my separation from you is a way of indicating that, that God is not pleased and God is not behind what you're doing. He's not in support of it. We read as well in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, just if you would want to say, oh, well, that was just one instance. Well, it happened in another church too. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 says, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, that is, don't obey the, the written word of God, the epistles were the New Testament letters, Paul's saying, if anyone doesn't obey the word of God, note that person, take note, and don't keep company with him, that he may be ashamed, that is, ashamed of their rebellion against God's word. Yet do not count him as an any, but admonish him as a brother. Again, it's not a destructive thing. It's to be something in a disciplinary sense where, look, I don't hate you. I don't despise you. I love you. However, I will detach from you until you are willing to recognize the shame of what you're doing wrong and address it in your life. And so there comes a time where we are called to do this as God's people, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, this isn't, well, somebody slips up one time and you cut them off. That's not what it's addressing there. This is not an issue of, well, somebody made one mistake. This is somebody who's consciously living in error. They've been confronted about it. They don't want to address it. They reject it. They ignore it. They keep trying to push it aside and there's no heart of repentance. Then the Bible says there is a time, kind of like what we see Samuel, the Lord's representative in that day in Israel's history, doing here, 
He detached himself from fellowship with Saul because there was no heart of repentance in Saul and no willingness to address what was wrong in his life. Well, Samuel at this point is grieving over this. He's mourning over this. And now as we come to chapter 16, we're not told how long, but apparently it was long enough because God says to him, how long? How long, Samuel, are you going to keep mourning about the disappointment and the failure and the things that Saul has done and his stubborn refusal. And let's, let's just say, when there's spiritual disobedience or failure or stubborn refusal in somebody's life spiritually and they don't want to repent or address something, that is a draining experience. Would you agree? To those who are attached to their life in some capacity. And this was Samuel. Samuel was the one, remember, who anointed Saul. So certainly he has a direct connection. He was the one that kind of, in a sense, endorsed his ministry. So certainly you can see how he would be grieved over this. They, they kind of served together. So there was this connection. And unfortunately, when someone disobeys or there's a failure or this kind of a thing happens and no repentance over what's going on that's not right, unfortunately, it can stumble people. And even more than that, it can, it can almost kind of paralyze for a time the work of God. It kind of causes a paralysis. And this is what it seems is happening in chapter 16 where the Lord has to kind of grab Samuel by the, by the collar, if you would, and say to him, Samuel. Okay, you understand my heart. I, I, I have grief in my heart over what happened with Saul and it's disappointing what's happened and his failure and his lost potential and his disobedience and unrepentant condition. But he says to him, verse 1, how long? How long, he says, are you going to keep mourning for Saul seeing I've rejected him? From reigning over Israel, Samuel was still mourning over a disappointment about something that had happened and God saying, Samuel, it's time to move on. It's time to move on now. It happened. And yes, it was disappointing. And yes, it's unfortunate. And yes, it was hurtful. And, and yes, it's discouraging and sad. And, but he's saying, look, there's a time to mourn and you've mourned, Samuel. There was a time to mourn. There's a proper time to be... But he says, look, you've mourned about it long enough and now there's a time when it's time to stop mourning and to move forward and to move on and to move beyond that situation, to let go of what happened that was disappointing, to stop dwelling on it and to embrace the next things that God has ahead, which is what Samuel is being told to do. Now go. I've provided myself another king. That failure of a man, that failure of a situation has not frustrated my ultimate plan and purpose, God is saying. I'm not that limited, God. God's saying, I'm really not that limited. Just because there was a failure, a problem, doesn't mean my hands are tied and I'm not able to still accomplish my purposes. And when God determines to begin and establish a new thing, we must follow his lead in faith. And this is very important because there come times in our lives Maybe we've experienced them. I've met people before where something does happen and, and there's some great disappointment that takes place. Maybe something hurtful. Maybe it's a, a relationship problem in a family or some issue happens in a church or something happens that causes just you know uh, some really hurtful experiences and, and there's disappointment and letdown and people feel disillusioned. And, but then what happens is they, they, they become paralyzed by it. And they just continue to mourn over it and mope over it. And it becomes this thing that just completely just drains the life out of them. And they become stuck in this rut 
of grieving and groveling over what happened. And sometimes the Lord is saying, okay, there was a time to mourn, but the time's done now. And how long are you going to stay? It's time to move on, God says. It's time to let it go. It's time to embrace the next step, to move forward. God's kingdom, God's plan always moves forward. There's a time to grieve and to be disappointed, but he says there's also a time when I've determined to then move on that you need to take the lead of God and let go and move on. And so he says to him here, go, fill your horn with oil. He knew what that meant. That meant to anoint someone. They would usually take out a hollowed out horn of an animal, very similar to the shofar horn we have on the back table there in the back of the sanctuary. Anoint that with oil. So you can imagine when they anointed someone with oil on that day, they didn't just put a little dab on your forehead. Uh, you know, and, and, and that was it. I mean, they, they dumped oil. It was very obvious when someone was anointed with oil in that way. And, and I think it's a very interesting thing because as we think of how oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and we talk about someone be, being anointed or the Spirit of God being poured out upon their life, well, you, you didn't have to kind of figure out was somebody anointed with oil in that day? Were they anointed with the Holy Spirit? It was very evident if they were anointed with the Holy Spirit and the oil of the Lord, if you would. So he says, go, I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, if you remember, Jesse, one of the grandsons, to Bethlehem, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So he receives an instruction now of what he's to do. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, the present king, he will kill me. And as erratic as Saul had become at that point, that was a legitimate concern. If you remember, Saul had become uh, pretty irrational, pretty, uh, you know, just unpredictable. I mean, he was full of insecurity and anger and just a control freak. I mean, we've seen some of the manifestations of Saul, and it only gets worse as time goes on. So Samuel, interesting, here's this man who's seen God do miraculous things and move in mighty ways, but as a servant of the Lord, there's a legitimate fear that came to his life. He was feeling a little nervous. Lord, if I do that... My life might be in jeopardy. There may be repercussions. If I obey what you're asking me to do, this guy may take my life if I go and anoint a new king while he's still the reigning king. Uh, and so what God was asking him to do kind of contradicted his logic. In some ways, Samuel's probably thinking like, Lord, um, uh, couldn't you maybe have, let him have a coronary first or something? I mean, just, you know, I mean, couldn't you do something? Or I mean, maybe you just call him to a new nation or something. Then we'll raise up a new king. I mean, if, if I anoint another king, while he's still the reigning king, uh, that may be off with my head and you're going to be a non-profit corporation, no pun intended. He says, that's dangerous, Lord. How can I do that? He might kill me. But the Lord said to him, take a heifer, a large animal with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel's got a legitimate fear of what's going to happen and be the outcome if he obeys the Lord. He might get killed. And let me just say, sometimes when the Lord asks you to do something or asks me to do something, there may be a legitimate fear attached to it. And you may find yourself, hopefully not worried somebody's going to kill you. Maybe, I don't know, depending upon what he asks you to do. And sometimes when we do what the Lord asks us to do it, uh, it, it may seem a little bit intimidating. 
There may be a little bit of, of, of threat or potential danger or repercussion attached to it on some degree in our life. It may put an end, maybe not to our life, but put an end to something or some danger or problem comes into our life. And, and we may find ourselves kind of faced with that tension and struggle. Lord, if I obey you, what's going to be the outcome to that? But this is where in faith we need to let our fears be what they are but be willing to push past them. And God gives Samuel instruction. He says, listen. He doesn't even address the, the concern. He says, just go. He tells him what to do. He says, take a heifer. Go to see Jesse. Tell him that you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord and invite him and his family. And look at verse 3. He says, and then if you do that, step one, I will show you what you shall do and you're going to anoint for me the one that I named to you. So God gives Samuel one instruction to follow. Just go to Jesse's house, bring the animal, announce that you're there to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And he says, after you take that step, step A, he says, then when you do that, I love verse three, God says, I will then show you what you shall do. Once you do what I've asked you to do first, I will then show you what you shall do afterwards it's called progressive revelation and this is the life of faith gang right this is what it means to obey the lord this is what it means to follow the lord's will for our life to walk in the spirit when you walk you can take one step at a time try it it's impossible to literally take two steps simultaneously you'll fall flat on your face it's called tripping falling walking is one step at a time and this is how God leads us in our lives in small ways and in the largest things he leads us to do he says just do this one thing I'm asking you to do and he doesn't you know we would love it if he would give us the full map right that's what we want Lord if I do step I'll do step one but could you just before that let me know what step two and three going to be and how they're going to respond to step three and then how will step four work out after I do step three and then and, and how and we want the whole road map and God says no 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 that's not called living by faith living by faith and dependence is obey what God asks and when we obey what God asks he shows us the next thing. And that's the wonderful thing. When we get to where God's asked us to be, obedience is always the seedbed for further revelation. Obedience is always the seedbed for further revelation. Just obey what God asks you to do. The one thing he asks you to do, obey it. And the wonderful thing is as you step in obedience, light is given. And God gives then revelation. And often God won't show us the next thing that he wants us to do until we obey the first thing he asks us to do. So Samuel has to overcome his fears. He has to be willing to obey what God asks. Just go to the house of Jesse, announce a sacrifice. So verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. So notice, though he had some fears of what might be repercussions, Though he didn't have all the details mapped out for him, nonetheless, what does Samuel do? It says he did what the Lord said and he went where God told him to go. Simple obedience. That requires faith and it requires submission. And whenever the Lord tells us to do something, that is the thing that we are responsible for in faith and submission to just simply obey, to do what the Lord says and to go where the Lord sends us. And it says, verse 4, And the elders of the town trembled at Samuel's coming 
saying, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, get yourselves ready and prepared, and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, interesting, when he comes into Bethlehem, it tells us the reaction of the people as he comes into the area of Bethlehem is they seem sort of a little bit stirred with concern, maybe even a little bit of fear, you could say. It describes there, verse 4, that the leaders of the town trembled at his coming, saying, uh, is, do you come peaceably? Is, is everything okay? And we have to understand who this is. This is Samuel the prophet. I mean, this is the prominent premier spiritual leader of the nation at that time. I mean, I mean, this would be like, best way we could probably relate to something like this is maybe to think about, let's say, for example, uh, you, know, you get a phone call. And, and somebody you know, said to you, uh, hi, uh, I'm calling on behalf of the Billy Graham organization and uh, uh, Billy Graham would like to come over to your house for dinner uh, and, and he'd like to have a personal appointment with, with you and your family. You would probably just be think, uh, is everything okay? I mean, like... I mean, the Lord, is everything okay? Is, and, and there will be just that natural tendency out of a reverence for who they are and what they represent. So, so the people have somewhat of a little bit of concern. They're thinking, oh my goodness, the prophet of God is coming to our town. This is Samuel, the prophet, the premier spiritual leader that he's come to our town now. And again, maybe word has passed on from, remember what happened at the end of chapter 15 with Agag? where Saul disobeyed. Remember, Samuel just took out a sword and he just hacked him to pieces to finish fulfilling the will of God. So maybe they're thinking, oh, is, is he settled down since then? I mean, what, what's, they're, they're a little concerned. And he says, look, I've come peaceably. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing's wrong. I just want to sacrifice to the Lord with you. I want to have a time of worship. Sacrificing to the Lord is just another reference to worship, putting a sacrifice on the altar and fellowshipping and worshiping with God together. So he invites them to this time of sacrifice and worship, and he tells them as they're invited to come into the presence of the Lord for worship, he says to them, sanctify yourselves and then come with me to the place of sacrifice or worship. I think this is beautiful instruction here. He leads them into a time of worship through offering of a sacrifice, and he invites the people, notice, to ready and prepare themselves spiritually, to sanctify themselves, to get themselves ready before they attended and participated in this time of worship. And let me just say, that's good instruction, because it is good to come before the presence of the Lord in a right condition when we do. To kind of set our ourselves apart and to sanctify our heart to have our hearts ready and prepared we want to be in a right condition when we come before the lord that our hearts not divided and that we're giving a whole heart over to the lord when we come into his presence and for times of worship so verse six says so it was when they came that samuel as they're now starting to come looked at eliab or eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So as the sons of Jesse, we're told seven, possibly eight if you count David, are coming now to this feast. And he knows one of the sons of Jesse is the next king of Israel. 
and God's going to tell him which one to anoint, but he knows it's among this family. It's interesting here, Samuel, verse 6, shows us, initially perceived, and we think this would be the firstborn son or the eldest, and the reason why is because verse 8 to 10 describes Jesse the father calling Aminadab and then Shammah and each of his sons, and typically, culturally, you'd bring the eldest first, he's the firstborn. It was just a way of honoring and doing things culturally. So it's very likely this is the eldest, oldest son. And Samuel, verse 6, as he sees the first son, it says he says in response, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He perceived that firstborn must be God's choice. And he makes a rather hasty conclusion that the very first option is actually God's best. Now you would think he would have learned from Saul's experience that Choosing according to this way is what actually causes problem. But here, even Samuel, a man of God, makes this mistake by making a hasty conclusion on the matter. Something about his appearance must have impressed Samuel. It must have indicated he had some kind of potential. So Samuel just assumed that what was being proposed or offered by a human idea was God's will. And the reality we see here is that is not the case. And so important for us to remember, like Samuel, we can make the same fleshly mistake in our humanity to remember that what people propose or what people offer or, or, or present may not necessarily be God's pick. So be careful and wait upon the Lord. And take time to pray and use discernment. Just because somebody offers something or proposes something or it just looks like, hey, surely this, this is what the Lord would want, whether it's God's people or not, no matter who it is, what they propose, just because somebody proposes something doesn't mean that's what God's picked. Doesn't mean that's what God's determination or God's will is. Notice verse 7, the correction comes. What the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Or his physical stature. Apparently that's what he was looking at, as we said, what somehow was impressive. Because I have refused him. This is not what I chose. This is not who I have selected, no matter what's being offered to you and people are recommending to you. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, just a great verse there. I mean, worthy of just you know, meditation and contemplation, the truths that are there for our lives and how we can think through that in many different ways. So Saul, we find here, verse 7, being corrected because what's he doing? Or excuse me, Samuel being corrected because Samuel is viewing things and he's evaluating things the wrong way. And again, Samuel was a godly man. So this is something we all need to be careful of in our lives. I can fall prey to this. You can make this mistake where we view things and we evaluate things that are, we think may be God's will, but we go about it the wrong way. Our, our approach is wrong. What he thought was surely the Lord's will was not the Lord's will. He says in verse 6, surely this is the Lord's will. And the very next breath from God is, surely this is not my will. You're pretty sure it's my will, but I'm telling you it's not. Which means he must have felt it was God's will. He must have thought it was God's will. So sometimes I can be very sure, right? We're so sure that this is what we're supposed to do. We're so sure that this is God's plan. We're so sure that this is the person that God has for me. 
We're so sure that this is what the Lord has chosen and what God desires. And sometimes the Lord says, that's actually not what I desire. You may be very sure, others may be very confident, but that's not what my desire. And God addresses this error of often by human reasoning, judging by just visual appearance alone. In other words, it looked really good on paper, <laughs> right? And that so often we can make that mistake, whether it's what we think God's telling us to do or some plan God may have for our life or some, again, some person or relationship or somebody we want to get married to. And we just kind of size it all up and we maybe we even make our little charts and our, you know, our pros and cons. And we, man, that looks great on paper. They are the one for me. And God goes, oh no, just throw the paper out. Because sometimes we can... And I messed my notes out there. I have to live by faith. Wow. <laughs> sometimes we can be like that. We're so confident and we're so sure. And sometimes the Lord says, despite how sure you are, that's not what I want. And, and we can make the mistake, right? Where we don't take time to look deeper, to wait upon the Lord to really be prayerful and, and, and consider things further and give God a chance to reveal if maybe though I'm very sure, I might be wrong. Because sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes God needs to show me I'm wrong. And sometimes I need to wait upon the Lord for that. As I pray sometimes, even when I start to feel very sure about something, I sort of have a, a rule of thumb for my life. We, we operate this way as a, as a church leadership where at times I'll say, look, okay, we feel very confident. Now let's wait a week. Or let's wait a few, and let's just pray. And let's purposely pray, Lord, we're giving you a chance. If we're wrong, please shut us down. If we're wrong, please show us. We feel this is you, but Lord, we want to give you the space and give you the time, change our desires, you know, crash the ships. I mean, just do something. Lord, we're giving you a space to stop us because we want to be submitted to your sovereignty. And, and, and sometimes this is an important thing and we can make a mistake, whether it's looking at people or situations or circumstances, making choices in here. God says to him, the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So many times, boy, we make this mistake as human beings with people where we look at their outward appearance and we know nothing about who they really are in their heart. Nothing about who they really are in their heart. We, we so often are so guilty, even statistically, you study, you know, just do a little research for, for job interviews and things like this. It's statistically proven that two people can show up for the same interview at a job, have equal qualifications in every department, and if one person is taller, statistically, the taller person will be given the position of employment, though they're completely equally qualified candidates. Why? They're just something about the taller person, Just they just... They're taller, I don't know. They must be the right one. But what is that? It's just an indication of our human weakness. We view things by outward appearance. So often we view people by outward appearance and we know nothing of their heart. And we make judgments and determinations, right? We look at somebody maybe who's all, you know, lit up with tattoos or piercings. And, and as soon as we look at them, we, oh, I, I know. I'm, you might want to walk on the other side of the street from that person. Or, or we, we look at somebody and we, we, we see them all you know, dressed up in business attire and they all clean and we and what am I say, oh yeah, <laughs> that kind of person. I mean, <laughs> there's somebody important. How do you know? 
You don't know anything about their heart condition just because they got a suit and tie on and they're all cleaned up. Or we look at somebody of a certain nationality or a certain skin color and we automatically, oh, you know nothing of that person's heart. And so often we can be so guilty of this mistake. Here, Samuel, one of the godliest men held up to us in the entire book, made this mistake. And we all have to be careful because we can all be prone to this, looking at the outward appearance, judging, determining who's the right person for something or that we know something about someone. And the Lord says, I don't see as man sees. Man has this problem of looking at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. That's what God sees. And what an important phrase, the Lord looks upon the heart. Know that tonight. If you've had people judge you the wrong way, view you the wrong way, you've been overlooked, mistreated, uh, you know, misunderstood, people who've had wrong perceptions, listen, God knows your heart. That's what matters most. It doesn't matter what people's opinion of you is. God knew what was in David's heart and God knew what was in Eliab's heart and God says, what's in his heart is not sufficient for what I want to do. But there is someone who has a, a heart after me and that's what matters most to me. So again, what an important, vital truth. The Lord looks at the heart because it's the heart that matters most to him, ladies and gentlemen. That's what God's impressed with. What God is concerned about, what's going on in my heart. That's what God's chief and highest concern is the condition of our heart. And we need to remember that, especially as it pertains to those that God will use. And this is what this is about, someone God's going to use. God cares about the heart condition more than any talent or outward ability that exists. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And the Lord, uh, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, uh, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. So now he's hearing from the Lord. He's slowing down. He's being sensitive. And as time passed, Samuel waits upon the Lord for direction and confirmation. And what does he realize? He actually realizes, as we see verse 8 to 10, that he has to be willing to refuse a few options before he's able to discover God's will and God's best. He had to actually refuse a few options first to be able to recognize what truly was the will of the Lord. And sometimes this is the way life works. Sometimes you've got to be willing to refuse a few things, let go of a few things to kind of wait it out to find God's best. I tell my daughters all the time, certainly as it pertains to marriage, but other things, I say, look, we don't want what's good. We want God's best. We don't want to settle for good. We want God's best. That's what we want. And here, some of these characters, Shama and uh, Abinadab, maybe they were good, but they weren't the best. David was the best because they had the best heart condition and that's what mattered most. So Samuel, at this time, he knows God's going to keep his promise, but he's perplexed. He says, are all the young men here? And then he said, there remains yet the youngest and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for we will not sit down Till he comes here. So notice this. This shows you how devalued, how disesteemed, how overlooked and insignificant David was perceived by his entire family. Literally, look at this. I mean, it shows us here he's viewed as such an insignificant person as the youngest in the family. His own father doesn't even refer to him by name. He just says the youngest. He doesn't say, I have another son, David. 
He just completely disregards the value of his youngest son. Oh, yeah, he's just the one that we keep out with the sheep. He did that. We just, yeah, he just, we do have one. He's out there with the sheep. Whatever his name was again, but he's out there with the sheep. We notice as well here, David's not even invited to this significant feast. This is Samuel the prophet. This is like having Billy Graham over for dinner. You would think you wouldn't just invite your sons and your own kids. You'd invite all the extended. We're having Samuel the prophet for a dinner at our house, a sacrifice. David doesn't even get invited. He's completely overlooked. He's completely, in his family's mind, just insignificant and unimportant. And unless Samuel demanded that he come, he wasn't even still going to get invited. Samuel said, we're not eating until you bring him in. They apparently, well, yeah, we did overlook him, but can we eat? You know, I mean, he says, no, we're not eating until you get one more and bring him here. And this is just, you know, people at times, listen, we get overlooked, but God still keeps his eye on every human being. And sometimes we may be overlooked, but God's got his eye on every person. He sees who they are. He knows what they're doing and he knows the heart of people. And God knows the potential that he sees in people. And you may have been cast aside, overlooked. You may be insignificant and unimportant to your family, to your friends, to everybody else. But I'll tell you this, you're not to God because God sees the value in your life because God sees what's going on in your heart. And that's what matters the most. And here they all overlooked David and yet David was the one that God was preparing and choosing. So he sent and brought him in and he was ruddy. The idea is reddish, which seems to indicate maybe his face is flushed because he's been out in the sun and running around with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took a horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now at this point, David is likely, we can't be dogmatic, a youth we know, probably somewhere between 12 to 15 years old. And he's just been anointed the next king of Israel. And can I say, though I've already said it before, all these wonderful things God says about David, his heart condition, what God sees in him, his spiritual condition, his potential to be used by God, this is all being spoken about a young man, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, a teenager, junior high, high school age. And God sees this value in his heart, the heart that this young man has for the Lord, the ways that God can use him, how God wants to raise him up. And what's God been doing? He's been preparing David in the place of obscurity. David's been out in the sheep fields. Nobody thinks about David. He's been living in obscurity, doing his tasks, being faithful in small things. Nobody knows anything about him. Nobody even cares about who David is. But God knows him. And God knows the heart condition he has and how he's been faithful in the small tending of the flock that he's doing and performing his tasks, just living in fellowship with God, worshiping God, writing psalms out there, looking at creation, thinking about God and who he is. And all the while, God's preparing him for the plan that he has for his life. And now the call of God we see happen is he's identified to be the next king and he's the one that God's chosen. The Lord says, anoint him, this is the one. The one that no one else would have expected, this is the one. Sometimes that's the way God selects. And he says, as he's anointed in the midst of his brothers, the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So as he's anointed with the oil, the spiritual experience of the spirit of God 
coming upon his life. The idea is anointing, enablement for service. He's now enabled and empowered with the supernatural dynamic of God's spirit resting upon his life to fulfill the purposes of God. Now, it'll be up to two decades before he actually steps into the position. There's more training. The call of God comes, but then after the call of God, there's still a cultivation that God will still do, preparing him. Sometimes we think God calls me and I step right into it. No, the call of God was very clear in this day. But then God trained and cultivated David, and we'll see many things David goes through to get ready to step into that role ultimately to be the king and to fulfill the purposes God has for him. Verse 14, watch what happens. But the spirit of the Lord then departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, God removes the spiritual anointing from Saul's life and God allows, verse 14 says, this unhealthy spirit, this unclean spirit, whatever it is, to come and bring distress and trouble Saul's soul and mind. Now the departure of the spirit here mentioned in verse 14, please don't misunderstand, has nothing to do with what we understand today in regards to New Testament salvation. At this point, it is not a time period historically yet when Christ has died and risen from the dead and ascended and then given the Holy Spirit who indwells and comes inside of and resides in the life of a born-again Christian on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. The Bible says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This has nothing to do with salvation here. This is a reference to how in the Old Testament at times the Spirit of the Lord would come upon someone's life to give them enablement, to anoint them, to fulfill a purpose and serve in the supernatural power of God. And God now removes his spirit. He removes the anointing from Saul's life as the result of Saul's continual rejection of God's will. And ultimately, he comes to a place where God says, you reject me enough, then I, then I remove my anointing from your life. And God pulls back now the spirit of God from his life to serve in this way. And at the same time, God allows this distressing spirit to come and to trouble him. Now, we look at that and people dispute, you know, well, what's that, what's that a reference to, this distressing spirit that troubled him? Was it a demonic spirit? Was it a condition? Whatever it is, listen, God allowed it. God removes his favor and his preservation and protection by removing his spirit and allows this distressing spirit to come as a direct consequence of his constant rejection of God's will and voice. And let me just say, whenever a person repeatedly rejects God's will, repeatedly rejects God's voice, so often God will allow this as a direct consequence Constant rejection of his will and his voice will often bring about an experience, listen, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, where a person's distressed and they're filled with stress and turmoil and they're troubled and agitated and, and it's almost as if their life is just constantly stressful and troubled and there's this distressing experience. Why? Because they're rebelling against the work of the Lord in their life and they're rejecting the voice of the Lord and so God will pull back perhaps his preservation and allow them to sort of be distressed and troubled. This is the experience of someone who rejects God's purposes and plans for their life as an individual. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who's a skillful player on the harp, which would be like an ancient guitar, we might say. And it shall be that he will play with his hand, and when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. 
So Saul said to his servants, great, provide me now a man who can play well. Anything, the idea is, anything to give me some relief, some peace, some therapeutic help with this condition I'm struggling under. And one of his servants answered and said, look, I have seen, interesting, a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is a skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. So of all people, who did they pick? David. Here God's beginning to raise him up, to allow him to be exposed to the realm of the, 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 the throne and, and what it means to be a king. Again, further preparing David. At this point, Saul's not threatened by him because he doesn't recognize who David is yet. Ultimately, we'll see he gets pretty insecure and tries to pin David to the wall with spears and everything else. But at this point, we see David already, again, as a young man, had developed into quite a young, godly man with a wonderful reputation and attributes. He'd become a worshiper of God. He was a skilled musician. He could play the harp, a musical instrument, well. At this point, he's courageous and diligent in his work, a mighty man of valor. He's, you know, the other chapters tell us killing lions and bears to tend and protect his sheep. And most of all, he's prudent and efficient in his speech. He's a good communicator. Read the Psalms. I mean, the things that David says, the proficient ways he has of talking about the glories of God and the spiritual experiences. And most of all, David, we read, and the Lord is with him. The presence of God is in this young man's life. And it was just so evident that the hand of God was upon him and present in his life. So therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse, his father, and said, Send me your son David, who's with the sheep. Interesting. Where did David go after he was anointed? Back out to work with the sheep. He's anointed by God. He receives the call of God, and he doesn't say, Okay, now listen. <clears throat> I'm called of the Lord. So I'm going to sit around, and you go work and take care. Now, what does David do? He just goes back, and he occupies himself, and he's faithful in doing what he's doing, and he just continues to be useful for the Lord until the Lord calls him out of the pasture and gives him something to do in the palace instead. Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a skin of wine and young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul as a gift. And so David came to Saul and stood before him. And at this point, Saul loved him greatly because he came even as armor bearer. So he proved himself to be a very worthwhile servant. That was a very high position to be the armor bearer of the king ultimately. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, please, let David stand before me. That is, let him regularly come to me, for he's found favor in my sight. Verse 23, so wonderful as we enter into worship tonight. And so it was whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take the harp and play it with his hand and Saul would become refreshed and well and the distressing spirit from the Lord would depart from him. So look at this. Here's David. He's this spiritually anointed musician. You might say ancient worship leader. And as he utilizes this gifting and anointing from the Lord, it has a very therapeutic effect to help Saul in this condition. With this distressing spirit that was troubling him and agitating him. And I have to imagine the music David was playing was worship music. Because read his psalms. And this is such a wonderful thing. Whenever David began to play, Saul would become refreshed. He would become well again. And that distressing spirit and the experience of it would depart from him. But what a great reminder. Music is such a powerful thing 
because it influences the deepest part of our being. I think that's why God tells us to sing. Music is a powerful instrument, and so God's given it to us as his people to help for our inward lives. Worship music can be such a valuable instrument to help our inward condition. Is this not true? We find ourselves, maybe we're all distressed, we're troubled about something, and then we enter into the house of God and we begin to worship and a spiritually anointed worship leader like some of those God's gifted us with just begin to lead us into the worship of the Lord and the music and the melody and the words and all of a sudden the distress begins to flee and we find ourselves being refreshed and renewed in the depths of our soul and our minds and something wonderful just begins to happen as we turn our hearts in worship to the Lord. Let's stand together and do that as we conclude our time tonight. Father, we thank you for...